0: Excuse me. Okay, so um, you'll be pleased to hear, since those of you who are eating your lunch anyway will be pleased to hear that um, this isn't really going to be about you we know, jolly good, this isn't going to be about um, sacrifice in any literal sense. Um, so it's not going to be particularly gory, therefore. Um, it's more um, using the motif of sacrifice um, and the economy that the motif of sacrifice implies uh, as a way of approaching questions of uh, political organisation and agency, uh, in specific reference to Bruno Latour. So I won't hang about. Here we go, so Bruno Latour's anti-sacrificial politics. The great achievement of Bruno Latour is an offering. But is it a sacrificial offering? From his work on the anthropology of science and its resulting actor network theory to what he called the politics of nature through to the vast inquiry into modes of existence and his recent facing Gaia, Latour has consistently offered the possibility of an alternative, richer conception of agency than any we might find in the human exceptionalism of our philosophies. If these remain wedded for the most part to an understanding of effective action as guaranteed only by the supposedly transcendent human will set against the realm of necessity inhabited by the natural or the machinic, Latour has argued that any account of action as it happens, if it can free itself from metaphysical a priori definitions of what counts as an agent, will find itself describing actions realized by human-non-human hybrids of all kinds. As will probably be clear from the way I've just presented it, I find this offering wholly welcome. I do have reservations, though, <coughs> and these concern what happens when Latour takes this understanding of agency into the political arena. And this is what I'll be discussing then in this paper, eventually via the figure of sacrifice. I'm not going to have time to cover the accounts of politics to be found in either the politics of nature or the inquiry into motive existence, although I'll be very happy uh, to discuss those later, if anyone would like to. My focus rather will mostly be on We've Never Been Modern, published first in French in 1991. And in sum, I'm going to argue that Latour's desire to dispense with what he presents as a typically modern politics, of violent, purifying rupture, what we might think of as a sacrificial politics, leads him to an unnecessarily sacrificial purge of his own. Latour's great achievement is an offering, then. But is it a sacrificial offering? As we might expect from his account of agency, power for Latour is not exclusively localised in one kind of privileged actant. Rather, all actants exert power on each other. Power is everywhere and as such neutral, The question for Latour is whether or not the more or less forceful associations comprising a given agential network are revealed. When these associations are dissimulated in a performance of supremacy, we are no longer dealing with force, but with what Latour calls potency. If all actants speak for other actants, silencing them in favour of their own more or less faithful translations, a potent force replaces the patient attention that might characterize this process with imposition, dictating the terms of the representation in question and masking its own dependence on those it claims to translate. It is thus that antagonism arrives in Latour's scenario as the exacerbation of the low-level conflict that defines his actants' mutual translations. By themselves, all actants are weak, obliged to make alliances with others, in order to act. This follows definitionally from the hybrid nature of action. The crucial dimension is the arrogance of the potent force, its relegation of other actants to supposed passivity as part of its claim to define the nature of the alliance on which it defend, depends. Excuse me. Now, Within such an understanding, potency is always an illusion, the product of an unfounded claim to supremacy. This illusory quality is no cause for celebration, however, for potency is by definition effective, taking form only when one force corrupts <coughs> others and claims their efforts as its own. Understanding that the emperor is naked does not by itself magically remove his potency. Since there is nothing but weakness, power is always an impression, writes Latour. However, this impression is all that is needed to change the shape of things by informing or impressing them potency is always by definition both illusory and real in the face of simultaneously illusory and effective potency then what kind of action is required at its simplest Latourzen 's answer to this question would be don 't act like the moderns in slightly more detail this answer means that in order not to repeat the fatal delusion of believing there to be an ontological divide between humans and non-humans, any action must refuse to think of itself as intervening from the outside, that is to say, as the transcendence of the currently existing state of affairs. Since all agents are hybrids and all force generated by alliances, no such transcendence is possible. In We Have Never Been Modern, The kind of action to be avoided goes by two names, critique and revolution. The first of these, critique, designates in its strict sense the attitude of mind which seeks to purify the hybrids of nature-culture, separating out the two elements and distributing them either side of what Latour calls a great divide, not least by its twin fantasies of transcendence, either human freedom transcending the automation of nature, or nature's determinism transcending human will. Latour also extends this sense of critique, however, to taking what he calls debunking, namely, that intellectual attitude which, mobilizing the movements of both transcendence and dialectical negation, sets itself apart, both epistemologically and ontologically, from that object whose previously hidden truth it claims to reveal. So much for critique. Revolution, in turn, may be thought of as the large-scale socio-political version of critique. That gesture which sets itself apart from the existing order of things in order both to reveal the corruption of this order and to sweep it away in a time of radical rupture, a moment of political sacrifice in which the past goes up in flames or is drowned in blood in order to give birth to the future. Year Zero. In his attempt to wean us off our modernist attachment to this sacrificial model of change, Latour deploys two principal arguments. The first is purely contingent, the upshot of recent history. Today, he writes, denunciation and revolution have both gone stale. Thanks to what he calls the miraculous year 1989, the failure of socialism has buried for good the modern fantasy of a definitive break with history a new dawn, bringing a new order of justice and equality. If this can seem a superficial, not to say banal account of the end of the Cold War, Latour's concern is not really with recent history as such. His second argument is that this contingent development has in fact only allowed us to see what was always the case, namely that revolution was never the radical upheaval it took itself to be. Now that our modern faith in a redemptive rupture (coughs) Has itself been broken on the rocks of history, we can adopt a viewpoint that does justice to the complexity of the world as a whole, rather than elevating one small part of the spe- one small part of one species, excuse me, to the status of transcendent historical subject. If there is one thing we are incapable of carrying out, we now know, it is a revolution, whether it be in science, technology, politics or philosophy. Revolution for Latour Tour is out of time. Its time has come and gone, and its eschatological self-understanding as a sacrificial break with previous times can now be understood as a distortion of the nature of temporality as such. There never was any possibility of rupture with our multiple pasts. Since any action must always be a local negotiation within a field of multiple actors and distributed agency, no break is ever possible, Thankfully, this impossibility is a welcome return to an understanding of the world and of action in it, as organised through complex networks of hybridity. Let us move on to other things, suggests Latour, before correcting himself, or rather, let us retrace our steps, let us stop moving on. And this is the nature of the action that is required, according to Latour, namely, the kind of action that has always been going on what he calls tinkering, reshuffling, crossbreeding, and sorting. This refusal of decisive, interruptive action should not be taken to imply that Latour takes no account of conflict, however. We saw above that antagonism is a key feature of his account of the relationship between agents. Indeed, that the domination of one agent by another is precisely what needs to be understood. In this sense, while it works for a common world, Latourian cosmopolitics is inherently conflictual. The point, though, is that conflict is to be viewed not as a means to an end, necessary if regrettable, but rather as a bone of contention, requiring translation and negation. Sorry, negotiation. Negation is bad. Negotiation. Whatever the distance, writes Latour, there is always something upon which an understanding may be built. To put it another way, everything is negotiable. But this is no facile faith in dialogue. Negotiation for Latour can cover the whole range of modes of interaction. Was it a battle, a ceremony, a discussion or a game, he writes? This is also a matter of dispute. The baseline insistence that everything is negotiable does seek to keep dispute in the mode of discussion, however, and away from the mode of war. Promoting discussion over violent conflict, without ignoring the latter, Latour would have us espouse what he sees as the noble and misunderstood patience of the politician, always working out compromises. Indeed, he writes, it takes something like courage to admit that we will never do better than a politician. To seek to burn past this low-level, messy negotiation is to fall back into the modernist fantasy of sacrificial rupture, and that way lies disaster. Those who believe that they can do better than a badly translated compromise between poorly connected forces always do worse. Mediocre negotiated compromise has always been the rule for Latour, and happily so. Bloody conflict. real enough, is best understood as an exception to be avoided if at all possible. Rather than soldiers, we should think of ourselves as diplomats, representing the interests of the alliance that we are, bringing these into discussion to work out the least bad compromise available with the alliances which surround us. Thus, Latour seeks to guide us away from a modern understanding of politics as the realm of decisive action, of radical, sacrificial ruptures breaking entirely with the existing order of things. In order to do this, however, he must distort his presentation of the political field, polarising it until it features just the two extremes of patient compromise and bloody revolution. And this polarisation might itself turn out to require its own kind of sacrifice. One of Latour's characteristic moves in this polarisation is to reassure us that where we might have thought we faced terrible difficulties, we have in fact nothing to fear. With reference to the notion of capitalism as an economic system founded on the principle of general equivalence, for example, he writes, like God, capitalism does not exist. There are no equivalents. These have to be made, and they are expensive, do not lead far, and do not last for very long. We can, at best, make extended networks. Capitalism is still marginal, even today. So Latour's message, in a sense, is don't panic. What you think of as a daunting enemy doesn't even exist. Now, his tactical overstatement doesn't help him here, of course. He isn't claiming that capitalism doesn't exist, only that it doesn't exist as the fully realised, smoothly functioning system described by both its boosters and its detractors. In its reality, capitalism is, in fact, like anything else, a matter of messy local compromises and alliances, of weak actors seeking the force of others to make their way as best they can. Latour explains, Take some small business owner hesitatingly going after a few market shares, some conqueror trembling with fever, some poor scientist tinkering in his lab, a lowly engineer piecing together a few more or less favorable relationships of force, some stuttering and fearful politician. Turn the critics loose on them, and what do you get? Capitalism, imperialism, science, technology, domination, all equally absolute, systematic totalitarian. Now, there's plenty to admire in these arguments. Latour's point is that the enemy will be more effectively opposed on the basis of an accurate assessment of its real force, not the paranoid fantasy of its total power. As he puts it elsewhere, it does not require enormous skill or political acumen to realise that if you have to fight against a force that is invisible, untraceable, ubiquitous and total, you will be powerless and roundly defeated. It's only if forces are made of smaller ties, whose resistance can be tested one by one, that you might have a chance to modify a given state of affairs. So the strategy does indeed sound like an excellent one, not least thanks to its sober evaluation of the real state of affairs. Unfortunately, however, it is is elaborated in the context of descriptions which present anything but a sober portrait, instead evacuating the field of all but its most two extreme positions. In these scenarios, there are only two alternatives, namely the total, an evidently delusional paranoid fantasy, and the vascular, which emerges by contrast as an evidently preferable description. Far from accurate assessments of real states of affairs, these descriptions are exaggerations designed to leave only one viable option. Either we embrace an obviously phantasmatic totalitarian evil, or we must accept Latour's trembling tinkerers as if there were no agential position between the two. Whilst elsewhere Latour does, as we have seen, grant the effectivity of domination, despite its illusory dimension, In these moments, he dichotomizes it into thin air, as an obviously ridiculous bogeyman. Are we really happy to grant that there are no intermediate positions between the conqueror trembling with fear and the evil of all-powerful imperialism? The major flaw with these images is that they simply evacuate any sense of the real effectivity of the weak actor's behaviour, given that this effectivity is invariably situated between these two extremes. Stalin's smallpox scars hardly lessen the numbers of those killed under his regime. While Latour seems to keep the question of effective domination open, then, not least in the importance within his model of differences in scale and power between actors, his handling of the issue all too often forecloses it by means of a false dichotomy. He will admit differences of scale only up to a point. If these start to look threateningly like transcendence, they must be debunked as non-existent. But Latour's exaggerations provide ample evidence that he is distorting the field precisely in order to remove such imminent discrepancies from view. When he writes, for example, that it is indeed difficult for us to deny the effects of scale, but it is still more difficult to believe unhesitatingly in the incomparable virtues of the political, medical, scientific or economic revolutions. When he writes this, his acknowledgment of the reality of domination disappears into the embrace of its concessive clause. When he asks rhetorically, is it asking too little simply to ratify in public what is already happening? his subsequent irony removes all possibilities other than this one. Should we not strive for more glamorous and more revolutionary programs of action, rather than underlining what is already dimly discernible in the shared practices of scientists, politicians, consumers, industrialists and citizens, when they engage in the numerous socio-technological controversies we read about daily in our newspapers? Quite simply, these are not the only two alternatives and the characterization of all forms of political activity other than this ratification as dangerous adolescent fantasies is a rather obvious sleight of hand, in which Latour both downplays the effective reality of major domination and effaces those multiple forms of decisive, interruptive action which cannot be equated with murderous insurrection. Inspired, no doubt, by François Furet's influential revisionist history of the French Revolution, Latour dissolves all such decisive action in the black night of totalitarian terror and ends up, at best, with broad caricature. Latour's polarisations work to pre-limit the range of political activity to engagement with only those forces which can be significantly compromised by low-level tinkering. On the one hand, of course, all forces can be, by definition, compromised in this way. On the other hand, however, some forces may in addition need to be met with other strategies, which do not thereby merit dismissal as bloodthirsty attempts at total rupture with all that has gone before. Where would a street protest fit into Latour's schema, for instance? This will almost certainly be part of a campaign including work on what Latour calls the constructed, artificial, assignable, accountable and surprising connections serving to keep up a regime's illusion of potency, But a street protest is not itself most accurately described as an instance of such work, being precisely directed against the regime as a whole, (coughs) as effective. The only alternative for Latour, then, is to classify it as part of a fantasy of occupying the place of total power, at which point it vanishes as a legitimate activity. Either way, it cannot figure within Latour's account of the political. What about a general strike? We could read this as the enforced blockage of the manifold capillaries keeping a state alive, an intervention across multiple tiny conduits simultaneously. And it is indeed this, in part, and is itself sustained by its own capillary network. But such an action also confronts the state as a whole. Its efforts are not just local and dispersed, but also gathered, synthesized and centrally directed against an opponent engaged precisely as monolithic. To affirm this is not immediately to give way to the fantasy of total power. It is rather to grant effective reality to the two kinds of sharp discontinuity Latour wants to smooth away, to major differences in scale and to decisive disruptive action. When Edward Snowden leaked classified information from the National Security Agency of the United States government in 2013, for example, he was recruiting various actors, email encryption programs, plus satellites, plus reporters, plus newspaper presses, etc. to exert pressure on one composite zone of governmental force, communications technology, plus digital encoding, plus military personnel, plus capital, etc. But his actions also constituted a decisive challenge to the legitimacy of the current institutions of global governance as really dominant at an emergent level beyond these local entanglements. If it is hard to see these actions as other than political, it is also clear that they represented neither low-level intervention alone, nor a grandiose fantasy of total rupture. Rather, they worked on one specific conduit, and thereby produced a frontal attack. As my description suggests, Latour's model could in fact perfectly well accommodate a case such as this. Since Snowden's recruitment of other actors was wholly apparent in his intervention, Latour could describe it as an instance of force exercised against the potency of an agent committed to hiding its own multiple conscriptions. As such, he could situate it along his supposed spectrum of more or less violent negotiations. But Latour's polarisation of the political field leaves him unable even to recognise the existence of such an action as both composite and large-scale decisive frontal. And this is far too comfortable. So the irony of Latour's account of politics in We Have Never Been Modern is that in seeking to undo the modern attachment to a fantasy of decisive, sacrificial rupture, he ends up operating a sacrifice of his own. In order to insist that politics can and should be just patient, local, low-level, messy negotiation, and despite his claim that this model represents a continuum up to and including violent conflict, he in fact consigns to the flames the vast middle ground of the political field, which cannot be confined to the two poles of small-scale tweaking and cataclysmic bloody terror. Like Christ as described by René Girard, he might be described as sacrificing sacrifice. But with no redemption to offer, this can only condemn him to self-contradiction. Modernist despite himself, Latour operates his own purification of complexity denying the composite agency at work in large-scale confrontation unless he can house this one side of his own great divide. Happily, though, we're not obliged to conclude from Latour's case that politics is inherently sacrificial. Rather, I suggest that we take Latour at his word when he claims to include conflict on his continuum and conclude this, that if modernist polarisation is indeed fatal, this in no way implies the non existence, or indeed the undesirability, as a way of reducing the potent to the weakness they effectively deny, of significant confrontation.